This episode of See Here is brought to you by Oogie Stoogie. Episode 31. Or was it 32? I've lost count. Uh, no, it's episode 32, I think, of the season. Yeah, it's number two. Right? Yeah, number two. Yeah. I'll, I'll, there you go. It's number two. You're not supposed to speak until I introduce you, you know? Go back into your box. Anyway, now that he wants to be introduced, well, my name is Morris, and on the other end of the Skype connection in Seoul, Korea, is Mr. Tim Merrill. Good evening. Can I come out of my box now? Yeah, you can be in there. Yeah, you can, come, you can come out of your box. Come on, sit on your chair. All right, all right, all right. Okay, good boy. Play nice, Tim. Play time. Stay, stay, good boy. And over in Bath in England, in sunny old England, is Mr. Bernard Stickwell. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning. It's actually grey and raining at the moment, as it normally is in the summer in the UK, so there you go. So Thanks. no sunburn on you? No, but I'm thinking sunny thoughts, so, okay. you know, do what you can. That's a good thing. And so, speaking about sunny thoughts and all positive things, we're here to talk about a film called Blank Generation. Cleet, cleet, cleet. <laughs> Actually, we're going to speak about two films. I don't know whether you guys watched the other film called The Blank Generation, but I've got a few things to say about that. Before we go talking about the films, let's go quickly and listen to a trailer. We'll be back in a moment. Well, I, I still don't understand uh, the crime part. Okay, you're listening to episode whatever it is, 31 or 32, as I said, I've lost count, of the See Here podcast. And this time around, our music-related film is called Blank Generation, directed by one Uli Lommel. Is that correct? Uli? Uli Lommel? Close enough. Okay. Uh, yeah. Written by Uli Lommel, Richard Hell, Bob Madero, and Peter Muller. Starring Richard Hell, Carol Bouquet, with a guest appearance by Andy Warhol. Although, we're wondering, is he actually going to show up? And the film was made in 1980, so the IMDb description of this film is Nada, a beautiful journalist on assignment in New York, records the life and work of an up-and-coming punk rock star, Billy. Soon she enters a volatile relationship with him and must decide whether to continue with it or return to her lover, a fellow journalist trying to track down the elusive Andy Warhol. Okay, Bernie, this was your pick. What's your excuse? Uh, I thought you were going to say uh, this is your fault then, which is... Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't do that. I'll say it, this is your fault. <laughs> okay, well, the reason I picked this, I'm a big fan of the music that came out of New York during this period, so, you know, the whole kind of CBGB punk thing. Mm-hmm. And Richard Howe, I've always thought, is a really sort of 
interesting uh, thought forward a genuine artist not to say the other people there weren't uh, artists of some caliber or another but he always seemed to have a slightly sort of classical intellectual bent to what he did mm-hmm. and you know i've been aware of this film for ages uh, and i thought it would just be a good opportunity to uh, to check it out because you know at the very least there is some fantastic voidoids footage in this yes uh, as it does turn out it is the very least so <laughs> So, uh, yeah, that's kind of why I picked it, and um, I apologise in advance. <laughs> well, let's see how far we can get through this, and uh, you know, there might be some positive aspects that you can enlighten us to, and I, I can think of probably one or two. I'll, I'll sort of give a couple of thoughts and see what you guys sort of have to say in response or, you know, what your initial thoughts are. But, you know, where there are films that you start watching, and, you know, they can move a little slowly or in a way that you're not sure how it's going to go, and then, bang, there's either that moment that hooks you in or loses you completely. And I can tell you the moment where I was lost completely in this film. And it was 15 minutes. I bet I know which part it is as well. But yeah, go on, Morris. All right, okay. So just to set the tone, as we've gone and said, this is a film about this beautiful journalist and the IMDb description didn't actually sort of state that the journalist is French. It's, you know, not necessarily neither here nor there, but she's in New York specifically because she's sent by her TV crew to do this, to do this profile on this up and coming punk singer in New York City. Why they're not looking in their own backyard is completely lost to me, but never mind. I, I get the impression she's she's more the sort of New York correspondent in a way, because she interviews various other people throughout the film, doesn't she? There's that one guy who's been to India who's talking about uh, cinema and Goddard and so on. Oh, we, we, the, uh, we're going to come to that The pretentious levels go right through the roof on oh that point. But, uh, I'd like to know what you think about the sentence of Godard who says that Cinema is a place for crime and magic. Um, well, I, I still don't understand the... Yeah. So anyway, so to set the scene, so they, within the first scene or two, she's interviewing him while he's doing a recording session, and then the next thing they're shagging back at his place or her place, and then you see them in a car, they're going out for an afternoon drive, and she's saying, where are we going to go? And he's saying, you know, I, I, I thought we'd go to the beach. Okay, let's do that. No, but maybe I don't want to go to the beach because I've got some phone calls to make. Okay, let's not go to the beach. But you know, maybe I think I want to go to the beach. And then she loses her nut. There won't be anybody at the beach today. That's wonderful. Might be a drag, though. Why? It's depressing and so damn cold. Sure you want to go there? I told you I don't care. Don't get excited. I'm not getting excited! Because he can't make up his mind and she basically throws him out of the car and wants to divorce the whole relationship because he can't decide whether or not he wants to go to the beach. And I thought, oh my God, Jules and Jim. She throws him out of his own car. She throws him out of his own car. But, yes, that was... The irony, of of course, of that scene is that she basically spends the rest of the film deciding she wants to be with him or she doesn't want to be with him or she wants to be with him or she doesn't want to be with him or... Oh, God. So, yes, talk about indecisive. So, yeah, so that that was a moment that absolutely, completely lost me because she went bananas because he couldn't decide where it was that he wanted to be. And, like, 10 minutes or 15 minutes into the film... 
and they're already lovers after barely knowing each other within the first five minutes of the film. And I mean, look, I was, as I said, I was wondering why this actually annoyed me as opposed to just rolling my eyes at it being a stupidly developed plotline. And as I said a moment ago, Jules and Jim, which if you've ever like, looked at any of my posts in the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema Facebook page, you'll know that that's my most detested film ever. <laughs> uh, a film where I gave not one fuck about any of its protagonists. And this is sort of what happens here. It's, it's a punk film with no energy, except in the CBGB scenes, which are not really integral to the plot. I would say it's not really a punk film. It's Uli Lommel is, is trying to bring some sort of European art house sensibility to this yeah. film. And, and yeah, and it just happens to be about a punk, I well, guess, because that was a, a certain thing that was going on at the time that appealed. But yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's a punk movie. It's a pretentious European art house movie. <laughs> There's a lot of music films or cultural films that try to capture zeitgeist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And what I would like to coin a new phrase here with this Uli Lamel uh, project is he's captured uh, Scheitgeist. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, created his I, own I think Scheitgeist. he's created his own Scheitgeist because I think what it is is this film doesn't know what the fuck it wants to be because I think it's a real amalgamation of this Euro trash, like artsy, bumwifery, like yeah. Bernie was saying. Yeah. And it also is trying to basically say, well, but we're in New York. And New York is punk, and this is CBGBs, and, and this is Richard Hell, and he doesn't know what he wants to be. He, he's an artiste, you know. And it's like, yeah, yeah, okay. But like I said to Morris a couple of nights back, I said it, it's almost like you know I knew that Lomel had a real obsession with the factory and with Andy Warhol, yeah, and that you know, and he actually was able to make a kind of a connection to Warhol. And I think that there's a possibility that this whole film was basically constructed around some type of way that you know, that they, they got Andy on the project, you know, that they said, we're going to do this art project, Andy, do you want to be involved? Okay. And so then next thing you know, it's just like, well, well Andy's involved, we got we to build this whole thing around Andy. He's like the sun, and then they've got to build the whole universe around the sun, you know? And I think that's that's what this film is to me. Uh, can I just answer a little bit? Yes, you can. Um, I think that's really valid because you were saying this film doesn't know what it wants to be about. I think it, it really feels like it doesn't care what it's about. No. Do you know what I mean? Is all, all the, I mean, the acting is, I assume this is intentional, but it's all very stilted and yet completely kind of passive and uncommitted at the same time. Well, there's a quote by one of the girls in this film and she says, well, I'm going to die one day, so what should I give a shit? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the gist of it, man. Yeah, there you go. What is your occupation? Lying. Are you afraid of anything? No, I know I'm going to die one day, so who gives a shit? I've already gone and made a comparison with this film to the French New Wave and as I've said apart from maybe someone like Melville who really was sort of working within the constraints of the French New Wave to make old American gangster films I'm not really a big fan so if you're a Truffaut or Goddard fan out there forgive me but I just can't stand that shit but the thing is that I'm wondering whether this was trying to pay homage to the whole French New Wave movement or whether it was trying to take the piss out of it and I even suggest that possibly because Twice in the film, the Carol Bouquet character says to people, you know, cinema is the place of crime and a place of magic. I'd like to know what you think about the sentence of Godard who says that cinema is a place for crime and magic. 
and you're thinking one time you think oh my goodness this is just pretentious twaddle when she does it twice you think maybe they're taking the piss out of her I don't think so I, well, I don't think Lobble cares enough to even think that much it's just that handy thing to slip in there and of course that is a Goddard quote isn't it Apparently. But you know, so, there was yeah. when we recorded our episode discussing Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. I said that I had problems with that film because I'm not a big fan of the biopics. It always takes a bit from here and a bit from there and a bit from there, and boom, there's your story. But even though that was a piss take, it still had to work within the constraints of the biopic to make fun of it. And I thought, well, if right. this was taking the Mickey out of you know the French New Wave, then it had to work within the constraints. And either way, it doesn't work. And you know what, Ben when you say that you don't think he cared I mean you may be right but the fact is a, you know, a little bit of research showed that he had worked for many years I don't know either as an actor or as a writer for uh, Fassbinder yes and that's part yeah. of the German New Wave which yeah. is similar to the French New Wave so maybe he did care I don't know it was just all pretentious twaddle to me the fundamental problem with the film is that Uli Lommel is not anywhere near as good a filmmaker as he would need to be to put off this kind of material right. that is evident throughout the entire film so what could have maybe had some depth or maybe been actually commenting on something just comes off as absolute pretension and, you know, we can't even decide whether he is taking the piss out of something or not because he's that right. a filmmaker. He can't even, you know, kind of get that point across to the audience. So. You're talking about the French New Wave and stuff and Breathless where it's uh, the American dude and then the, you know, and then the, the European chick. Like, I mean, you can see parallels to a lot of it, but it's just, there. Yeah. I got about 30 minutes into Breathless. I don't know, take away my thoughts lover's card if you're happy but <laughs> I couldn't get to it I really couldn't I know it's supposed to be important and I'm sure you could quote a whole lot of wonderful things about it you know the photography and and all other manner of things but just as a piece of film just to watch and enjoy I couldn't make my way through it I'm sorry everybody's got their Ishtar Morris right well, I don't know what you're talking about it's a perfectly wonderful film <laughs> yeah well a film they enjoy and admire very much yeah. what a smuck I was schmuck <laughs> yeah. As we've already gone and said here, this is not really a music film. This is a film where the main character just happened to be a musician and maybe every 15, 20 minutes or so, oh, we'd better have uh, Richard Hell Voidoid singing Blank Generation at CBGB's just so you remember that he's a punk musician. But otherwise, it was not really a music film. And then I also remembered another film that you'd pick, I don't know, it was a, maybe about 17, 18 months ago, Bernie, which was Suburbia, the Penelope Spheris movie. Oh, and, sure, yeah, yeah. And that was also not so much of a music film but it's still qualified as a see here film because it had that punk energy and these people you believed them that they were part of that whole scene even though yeah there was some music in it sure but it still qualified because it was about the culture and here yeah, yeah. these people and it had that energy and this film is the antithesis of it I was waiting for Richard Hell or Carol Bouquet at some point to say oh would you mind breaking out the Chablis or something like that <laughs> it was really right. as far yeah. away from the punk movement as it got <laughs> Between the period of Warhol and the Factory up to the 80s, there were, you know, a few, like, experimental filmmakers in New York at that time. Like, there was, like, the Beth B, and uh, there was this guy, Amos Poe. Oh, sure, who yeah, done, yeah. done some stuff, and I mean, and a lot of that, the, the films, the short films that they had shot in New York were just these, like, conversation films, like, talking heads, like, two people in a room having, you know, some type of existential conversation, man. And a lot of it was that, or a lot of it was, you know, shot in the city, like just people walking around and talking or driving around and talking and 
and a lot of this film is that. It's almost like this film kind of has this junkie sheet too. If you're not into being on the nod and sitting around and basically staring off into space, then this film was almost like glacial, like in its pacing, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I'd rather I'd rather sit and watch paint dry for Christ's sakes, you know? So Tim, what you're saying is that if we'd all taken heroin before we watched this, we might have enjoyed it a lot more. Oh, you, you would have found it to be a fast-paced hot thriller. Yeah. As far as <laughs> the first film that we ever discussed, or, or was it the first film? Well, certainly one of the first films that we discussed was with, with Rodrigo as that gentleman's bonus episode we were discussing around midnight. And that's as slow as it comes. Right. And yet it was paced beautifully. We expected this sort of thing. It was about a relationship. It took its time, but wasn't boring at any stage. So slow doesn't necessarily no, mean... because No, but because the characters in that film had depth to them and you cared about them. Yeah. And in this film, there's nothing invested in this film. Everything's on the surface, it, isn't it? What's funny is how it's like this meta thing where, okay, it's Richard Hell's real band, the Voidoids. And yet, is he playing a character or is he playing himself? You know, you're watching this and he's just being this little pretentious little pawns, you know, where, like, there's a bit where he just leaves the stage and his manager's just like, come on, Billy, you just can't leave the stage in the middle of a performance. Are you crazy or something? He just can't walk out in the middle of a performance. Then he's the answers off us. I don't care. Look, we'll work this one out. I'm gonna tell Kellerman that you've been working too hard and under too much pressure. But you gotta come back here tomorrow night and play for this audience again. But this time for free. I'm not playing tomorrow night or any other night. Oh, come on, Billy, let's be serious. Okay, I'll be serious. You're fired. Oh, shit, stop playing around, will you? Listen, Jack. You know I'm no prima donna. I just can't continue doing this. Fed up. Well, I'm never gonna play for anybody again. You're not even gonna be my manager. You're fired, right? It's just like <laughs> a pretentious 16-year-old, isn't he? Really? Right, right. Like a little petulant, little yeah. snot-nosed kid. But you don't know whether that's him playing it up or that's just hell being hell. Like, well, and the woman. I mean, both of them are playing like they're almost like they're they're both playing like little kids. Yeah. Because every yeah. every time he says something to her, she's just like, "Fuck you, Billy. I'm leaving. I'm leaving now." And then you see her start packing her. You leave! You get out of here! And I'm like, oh, for shit's sakes, you know? So, like, what you're saying, Tim, is that Billy would not have cut it as a member of the Murder Junkies. First of all, rock and roll music to me it's always been about real re rebellion and nonconformity. And my mission is to put danger back into rock and roll, something that's been missing for a real long time. No, no. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, let's put it, let, let's put it this way. If, if it had been that case, you know, what happened was they would have went to the beach, they would have been driving to the beach, they would have gotten into an argument about, you know, go to the beach or not go to the beach. He would have wound up dismembering her, putting her in the trunk, and then dumping her off at the beach, right? <laughs> that would have been a much more satisfying film as well, I think. Yeah, right. And, and Uli Lamel, he could have done that because, I mean, with his pedigree, with all the other films that he's made. You, you look at his, uh, his career and the, the amount of just trashy horror crap he's directed. Oh, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I don't know whether this was him trying to flex his serious sort of filmmaking muscle and then just realizing. Because, of course, this key, he made this and this came out the same year. It was The Boogeyman, which is probably his right. best known horror right. film, isn't it? And it's like, you know, they're. Uh, Chalk and cheese, you know. So I still have a sneaking suspicion this was kind of a way of him to kind of rub, rub off belly to belly with uh, with Andy. I yeah, think you know, I would be surprised. Yeah. 
I was going to say that uh, party where um, what's it called Caroline sort of X comes over to track down Andy Warhol's as you said right. earlier and so she kind of goes back to him but then she goes back to Billy but then she goes back to him again and he's played by Uli Lommel and um, right. he's super pretentious with bad hair <laughs> um, but that's uh, that party they have where Richard Hell kind of shows up and they're all just talking and mingling and so on that kind of had a bit of a factory feel to it in that people were just kind of like being a little bit like woo look at me and wow I'm crazy and outrageous and look how creative I am and I'm a strange old guy tying up the phone for hours just because I'm here you know I invited you to the party and you spend all your time on the phone I told you were expecting a really important call uh, that kind of definitely had a sort of factory-ish vibe to it, I think. Maybe that's what he was going for anyway, I don't know. Maybe he'd watched Midnight Cowboy the night before and thought, hey, they have a psychedelic party. I can do that. Oh, yeah, yeah, Sometimes I'll sit down and watch films where there's certain characters in the film, and they just, I'm glad they're on the screen, because if they were in front of me, I'd probably wind up asphyxiating them. Yeah. Because, <laughs> because you can't stand watching these people. It's just like they you just get on that final nerve that you've got. And every Everybody in this film is like that. Everybody. One of the huge problems with this film is that there is no character in it whatsoever that you can like, basically. They're all just right. absolutely horrible, pretentious, selfish, childish idiots. I don't see that as the crime, because there are other films where there's not a single character that you can like, and I'm thinking Clock. Oh, sure, sure, yeah. With one of the problems with the film. I'm saying the crime here is every character is dull. Evil characters, no one that you can hang your hat on and sort of think, oh, I want that person to succeed. You know, it, it can still be a a little bit of a trick but if they're dull then that's un that's really unforgivable uh, you'd already gone and mentioned a few moments ago Tim uh, the director Amos Poe and as long as you've gone and brought him up I think that's probably a good segue I don't know did either of you watch the film The Blank Generation yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I didn't YouTube wouldn't let me watch it so really I, I'm aware of it and I, I know what it is but uh, yeah I, I tried to watch it and um, YouTube said sorry this video is not available yeah, so uh, well, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll give you just a little bit of the background so The Blank Generation, which came out in 1976, it's essentially a whole heap of 16mm footage strung together, basically you know, featuring the cream of New York City punk bands before they were famous, playing at places like CBGB's and I'm guessing Max's Kansas City and you know, any of the other sort right. of big punk venues at the time. Uh, the film footage is all black and white and was all originally shot without sound. So the bands gave Ivan and Amos, I don't know if it was demos or early recordings of their performance which he then posted over the top of their film footage with absolutely no thought to audio and video synchronizing or even sometimes being the same song I'm imagining and if Ivan ran out of footage before a song was finished the song would just cut off and move to the next artist and their footage so there was no cohesiveness in any sort of way it was sort of like watching the kids are all right but it made the kids are all right look like Citizen Kane in terms of <laughs> how, how it was developed but I'm here to tell you I love this film the, the whole concept of let's do it like you can sort of imagine it took the same amount of pretension that the characters in Blank Generation would have had and everyone seems to be going around with a camera it, it may be in that way in, in that way Blank Generation is strangely prophetic but we'll come to that in a few minutes but there was the energy that you got from watching these bands even if what you heard and what you saw on stage was not the same thing it was still something that I found really invigorating and look it didn't outstay its welcome it was only 53 minutes maybe if it had gone for two hours might have been a different thing but 53 
three minutes getting to see television, the Ramones, the Patti Smith Band, mm-hmm. Talking Heads, mm-hmm. the New York Dolls, and some other bands who I didn't even know who they were. It was like watching them in the Cavern Club. Just imagine watching the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. After, that's, yeah. What, that's what this was. And it was, for me, really exciting. It, it's not like a conventional sort of music documentary or anything like that. And you could argue, well, it's fairly amateurish, but it was made with you know, some heart and probably people who truly gave a damn about what they were filming. And just a great rock and roll film. Every time there's always been cultural moments uh, throughout history, I always kind of equate it to like a fire. When it really primarily starts off, there's a big fire and, and everyone's there, they experience the heat, they see the fire, they see the, the the wild, raw nature of it. But then over time, you know, there's some that unfortunately just get to smell the smoke. And then yeah, unfortunately smoke. after that, there's some that just get to see the remains or, or just kind of see the scorch marks, right? Yeah. So, I mean, in comparison to you know the blank generation the Lamel film that's like basically smelling a little bit of the smoke and seeing some of the scorch marks mm-hmm. whereas the blank generation the Poe shot that's the fire yes yes absolutely yeah. the same thing can be said about you know like I say like a lot of uh, cultural happenings like for example like gr- grunge I mean when we saw those bands come up we were there and saw the fire we saw the burn but then after you know when it hit MTV and everything else that's when you know everyone else just got this see you know like smell a little bit of the smoke and just see all the ashes and everything that was left i mean yeah yeah oh, well maybe we should have chosen the blank generation instead of blank generation no this is a great thing because what we've done here is that you can see something that is, was really substantial and you can see how far it became diluted yeah. sure yeah well like you say with see, any kind of cultural event or, right. or kind of movement right. like that is it's right. a perfect example of how that always seems to happen yeah you know like you look at how far even punk has come today like with hot topics you, you look at like you know, all these rappers now that are wearing like napalm death t-shirt you know like denim jackets with doom on the back of them <laughs> you know, like, it's funny it, it was, uh, Bernice and I were in uh, a shop yesterday it's called uh, Entertainment Exchange and they basically buy and sell Blu-rays and DVDs video games and stuff and it's all sort of young kind of I guess what you would call alternative kids that seem to work in there with their ripped black jeans and dyed hair and stuff oh, yeah. music they were playing on the stereo I don't know whether they had some specific specific kind of playlist or whatever but it's all these i guess what you would call kind of emo or where emo is now and it's all it's got all the kind of tenants of punk rock and metal it's really loud guitars and it's gnarly and it's technical and so on but it's just got this kind of sheen over it that just makes it nothing it's the equivalent of just listening to background sort of pop you know it's like elevator music but right but i think a lot of you guys familiar with the cargo cult phenomena I'm not cargo folks. Yeah, well, what happens? They, they would have these guys that would fly cargo planes in the South Pacific in the 1940s, in the 50s, and they, these planes would crash and they'd land on and they'd crash land on islands that were inhabited by indigenous people. Oh, on these yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the indigenous people would get all the loot that would come out of these planes, and they would never, they'd never seen planes before, and they thought so that good. you know they were gods. So then what they tried to do was they tried to replicate everything yeah, that yeah. was in the plane, and the, they'd have like a skeleton and they. They'd have like a little, uh, they'd build a little model of a man with a little captain's hat on and a pilot's jacket on and they'd try to build everything as a mock-up of the plane in hopes that another one would come and bring them our gifts, right? But what I'm trying to say is that that whole cargo cult phenomenon is kind of transcends into popular culture as well. Sure, yeah, yeah. Where, where what you're saying, Bernie, about this whole sheen and about them, these kids with the emo stuff, that's just like, to me, like cargo cult of like of the original punk movement. 
sifting through the wreckage of something that happened 40 years ago when right, they, they don't like, quite understand yeah, they don't quite understand the facsimile of it which uh, yeah the, the, the punk phenomenon in 1980 I mean it was only like three or four years hence since those bands that they covered in the blank generation had been we're not talking yeah. 40 years down the track that's oh. it really the if it's not the fire there should still be you know like a few spot fires or something like that still burning it's well just, you know there, there was I mean in that period I mean you know this is when hardcore was beginning to happen in 81 wasn't it but that was on the other coast with a bunch of different people so there's right, another right. fire burning over there and the one in New York had pretty much gone out at this point you know so I think and we'll, so, be yeah, we'll be discussing the decline and fall of western civilization before too long then yeah yeah Hugh Dommel was exactly as you were saying he was kind of he was uh, you know he was there after the fire had gone out and all he captured right. here was the, the damp smell of burnt timber basically it's kind of funny like you said Bernie that this came out the same year as you know the boogeyman yeah. and then Lamal you know he was basically known as an exploitation filmmaker right oh, yeah. and, I, and I consider this film to be exploitation as well because yeah, he's yeah. just he's, he's exploiting the whole New York punk scene and he's basically you know for Europeans that have never gone to New York he's just like oh this is New York and we've got the cream of the crop we've got Richard Hell of the Voidoids and oh you know and he's selling it back to Europe and they're probably just you know gobbling this stuff up just getting high off it you know meanwhile everybody in New York just probably thought that oh this Uli the Mal guy is pointing a camera at me okay Uli what do you want me to say uh, yeah, you know? yeah. and I mean and everyone probably decided it was you know just a gas you know, just a joke but meanwhile back in Europe you know it, it, they probably thought oh my god like wow like you know this is punk Billy I'm leaving you now it's better for you and for me you're driving me crazy and I'm not the right woman for you. Don't forget this tape. It shows the beginning and the end of an impossible dream. One or two things that I can say that's positive about it, and I guess neither of them are like from a story or acting or creative side of that, but the photography, the guy was, I think, Ed Luckman, L-A-C-H-M-A-N, and I haven't checked to see what else he did, but he photographed this really beautifully, and you got to see some parts of 1980-era New York, and I mean, in one regard, that's probably what makes the film slightly worth watching, is, you know, it's another time capsule, it's, you know, this is what New York looked like at that time, and it did show the, the gritty side of it but that's once again that probably serves against the film because you know once we get to the action or the non-action as I want to call it it so goes against the grain it seems like we're going to film mm. this gritty side in New York because that's what it's supposed to do I mean can you imagine if say William Friedkin had gone and made the French Connection or uh, I've forgotten who it was that directed the 7-ups and gone and shown this gritty side in New York then the cops stop to uh, have an existentialist conversation <laughs> about what life yeah. was really all about and I mean that's they were trying to sort of get everything here in this film they were trying to show the gritty side of New York because New York is that hard sort of town but we're going to have these really wimpy uninteresting characters we're going to get the, the people who belong in a Woody Allen film and that's no disrespect because I mean, I'm a big Woody Allen fan but you know, a bad Woody Allen caricatures set in a William Friedkin New York you got me thinking here now that there's one director Bernie that and one film that I can really compare this to in New York at the time yeah. and that 
that is Abel Ferreira. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, you know, you look at Driller Killer, the film that he did. And Driller Killer, I don't know if you've ever seen this, Morris, but it's a very no-budget exploitation horror film about this uh, guy running, like, a tenement landlord who just snaps and starts offing all his tenants with a drill. But there's a punk band. There's a, you know, a punk band in this film as well, in Driller Killer. And he snaps, and he goes after the guys in the punk band with his drill. But it's the same type of... Ferreira's got that same type of European art house sensibility to the way he shoots. A lot of his characterization is, is very, very similar to this. And, you know, and I never thought about it before, but now as we were talking and thinking about New York at that time and, you know, Amos Poe and other filmmakers, and I thought, oh, Abel, absolutely. You know, like, that film was very on par with, with this. Yeah, it's yeah. more of a, it's much more of a punk film than this is as well. Oh, it? yeah, absolutely. Absolutely it is, yeah. And, uh, as we've been talking here, I've, I've put my beret on. <laughs> and uh, I've been thinking some existential thoughts, and, and yeah, I just you, want to... you fired up your skinny, skinny little cigarette with a cigarette I, I, Absolutely, my, my jazz cigarette, yeah, yeah. And yeah, um, yeah. I've been sipping on some black coffee, yeah, and, uh, just to try and stay awake, to be honest. But I just want to float this past you, and maybe this is what Uli Lommel was trying to say or do with this film, whether he's successful or not, whether this is even the case, but it is essentially a romance between two people. Uh, certainly, that's the, the core of the film. And like you were saying, it's, it's kind of a punk film, but it doesn't really take place in the punk milieu other than when they go to a club or you get one of those shots of downtown New York or what have you. Right. It's all kind of lofts and studios and hotel rooms and things like that. So you've got the uh, the journalist, Nada, falling in love, as it were, with Billy from that world, where she's from the kind of wealthy European kind of world. And their relationship is, is kind of doomed they, because they just they don't connect. And they're both pretentious, shallow people, just can't connect with each other or don't even seem to care about connecting with each other. So is that why it's called Blind Generation? Is that, is that the statement that Uli Lommel was making, that it doesn't matter what kind of side of the tracks you come from? person's uh, ability to connect with another person is just such a, a kind of shallow, baseless, boring thing that does any of it even matter, you know? Well, is that what he's saying with this? There's probably not for no reason that he names his female protagonist Nada. You know, I thought that as well. Yes, yeah, yeah. Right. The way I saw this is it was kind of a race between her and Billy to see which one could disappear up there on ours first. Totally, totally. Because, you know, it's just like she's so obsessed with her career and he and he's just like, I give a shit about anything. I don't care, but he really does care. And the two of them are just so concentrated on their own trip, you know, blowing themselves and then but they're not you know, the energy that they put towards their own kind of uh, advancement they don't put any of that energy towards the other. No, no, not at all. Yeah, the selfish generation. Um, I, I don't know. Do you guys want to wrap this one up? Because I think we've pretty much said all yeah. we need to. Yeah, yeah. I did. There was, I just want to uh, oh, mention briefly as well. You were saying some of the positives about it, Morris. Is some of the photography. The scenes in the club, even though it's basically, I think they only play Blank Generation, maybe one other song, but it's over and over and over again. Which means it's got something in common with that thing you do, hearing the same song yes. over and over yeah, again. Yeah. About the only thing, real apart from the photography and those moments. And CBGBs. Yeah, I, I think the, yeah, the actual performances. I think. I mean, if you're a fan of the Voidoids and Richard Hell, as, as as much of a slog as this film is, it's worth just trying to you know fast forwarding to those moments because the actual right. live footage I think is fucking scorchingly good. Well, with Marky Bell. Mar- yep, yep. Marky, yes, exactly. Yeah, Marky yeah. Roman, and and uh, I was discussing this with uh, Tim a few days ago. The great Robert Quine on guitar. Yes. 
And I did just want to say as well, I mean, Hell was a terrible fucking actor, but um, uh, as is pretty much everyone in this. Allegedly, he's uh, become a film critic. Well, I know he's, he's kind of left music and started writing, hasn't he? He's written several novels, so uh, yeah. I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't put that past him. That makes kind of sense. But what I would say is that he does have a kind of charisma and charm and likability despite how shitty he is in this film. And that's right. not, I mean, he's, he's not an actor, obviously, but I think like script and obviously Lommel's direction kind of wrong for him. He, you know, he's really hung out to dry, as is everybody in this fucking film. He's like, um, he, have you guys ever seen Straight to Hell? Yes, yeah. Alex Cox. And, I mean, like he's got everybody in that film. He's got Courtney Love, he's got uh, Joe Strummer, Shane McGowan, Xander Schloss, like all these you know, musicians. And and the, most of them, you know, they can't act to save their lives. But, you know, but while you're watching it, it's, it's entirely, you know, charismatic. You're drawn into the characters, but watching it, you're going, man, you better not give up your day job, dude. Yeah. <laughs> well, the same with Hell, but I just wanted to say that there is something special about him but this certainly isn't you know the best stage for him to uh, to put that across you know right the, the final thing i guess i wanted to say was i read somewhere that the, on the dvd release of this film there's like a 45 minute interview with richard hell you know done many years after the fact and he hated the whole experience he hated the film oh, really he said it was pretentious it was bullshit it, he didn't get along well with anyone in the film and this is a quote apparently from that 45 minute interview he said there's actually not a single truthful authentic moment in the whole movie so that makes me like him even more as if such a thing was possible what a guy but he he co-wrote it well at least he's on the credits as having co-wrote it so yeah I wonder how much of that was input though and whether he you know maybe some of it was a little improvised or maybe so I paid my rent yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) normally that gives someone like an executive producer credit for that sort of thing though Right. We, you know, we can forgive people these youthful indiscretions. We've all done things that we're not well, proud of. Sure. There's a lot of musicians, though, like, I mean, that have kind of made a little bit of a transition. Like, for example, Debbie Harry did a number of films, you know, yeah. aside from vi- Videodrome. She did a film, Union City, I remember yeah. seeing years and years ago. And there's, you know, like, and she wasn't bad. I mean, like, yeah, there's... Yeah. There's, there's some people that can do it, but again, you, you've got to have that ability, you know, you've got to have the skill to do it. And I mean, just because you can go in front of a crowd of people doesn't mean that, you know, you can stand in front of a camera, right? That's right. Co- confidence doesn't mean you're actually any good at what you're doing, does it? No. But it's yeah. No, it helps, I guess, in that respect. All right. It helps you to get out there and make a fool of yourself. Where's Warhol? No answer. He was supposed to be here an hour ago. Maybe he's still sleeping. All right, so there's our discussion about two films, Blank Generation and The Blank Generation. Bernie, I wholeheartedly recommend that you try and find a way to yeah, discover I think, um, The Blank Generation. Track it down, yeah. it's, it, that, that really is worth a 50 minutes or so that it run, uh, of the running time. That wraps up our discussion for episode 32, and it is 32, I just realized. See here. Number two. So it's my turn for next month, and I'm, I'm hoping I haven't picked a turkey. I don't know. This is one I haven't seen. It's sort of a forgotten film film from the golden era of Australian cinema, the 1970s. And this is a film from uh, 1976 that the director, I've forgotten the name of the director, never mind, we'll get round to it when we talk about it in the episode. The name of the film in Australia was just called Oz, but I think outside of Australia it was called 20th Century Oz, made in 1976. 
and it's basically a rock and roll road movie as it's described telling the story of the Wizard of Oz but Dorothy is a groupie and the Scarecrow I think is a car mechanic and basically they're telling the same story but they're all off to try and get to a rock festival so I don't know it could be one of those wonderful sort of midnight films that's just been forgotten about it could be terrible but we'll find out as we watch it over the next few weeks two things about that we've invited very special guest back to the show to join us Mr. Mike White at the projection booth so looking forward to have him come on and share his thoughts and he's bringing someone with him which is very exciting Mike did an interview for a future episode of the projection booth with Bruce Spence and if you've seen Mad Max 2 also known as The Road Warrior and I'm sure a lot of the people who listen to this show have any of the Australian listeners might remember Bruce Spence more from films like Stork or Dimbula so Bruce Spence is in uh, 20th Century Oz and Mike did an interview with Bruce Spence to talk about the film The Cars That Ate Paris and I said to Mike in advance I said look would you mind asking him some questions about 20th Century Oz and his recollections of that so Mike did and he's very kindly agreed to allow us to play that portion of the interview in our show next month so what did Bruce have to say about working on 20th Century Oz well you'll find out in September 2016's episode of See Here so really really looking forward to uh, watching that talking about that some housekeeping if you want to correspond with us or just talk to us about your favorite music related films and join the see here facebook group that's uh, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here that's s-w-h-e-a-r or you can email us at see here podcast at gmail.com and we hope that you do one of those things because we you know we like people to correspond with us we're, we're not insecure or anything but we just like to hear from people i think that's pretty much uh, pretty much it and you can tell us how, uh, where we on the money with uh, with this film Blank Generation or have, have we forgotten something was there some really wonderful element about it that we just did not discover we'd love to know what you thought about it so please correspond and let us know and I think that might be it guys Any anything else that you want to put out there uh, I'm sorry everyone <laughs> <laughs> oh never mind I'm sorry. you're forgiven this time you're forgiven this time Brady okay we're all allowed a certain number of clunkers I guess but I think mine uh, I don't know I think maybe the third one or my next one will be my strike can I make, so... No, I never, never, <laughs> never, never. Hang on, wait a minute. Who was it that picked the apple? Oh, hang on, that was, that was a request, wasn't it? Wasn't, uh, yeah, it wasn't Justin who picked it, was it? It was, it was Justin Oberholzer, and then he, was, then yeah. he, yeah. And then yeah. he chickened Make out it, the yeah. last minute. The yeah, he's yeah. laughing us, yeah. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. 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 watch that. <laughs> uh, we're going we're gonna to get you back to uh, Cinemassages. All right, okay, so uh, on that note, we just want to say um, one final thing to you, and that is that cinema is a place crime place of, no, I don't want to say I just want to say be nice to each other and watch some better films than the one that we watched for this episode so until next time cheers y'all cheers bye what the mirror does but when I die for the wall and I set a place I belong to the blank generation and I can take it or leave it each time well I belong to the generation but I can take it or leave it each time It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.